This is uh, the siesta session, I think, after we've had such a lovely lunch outside. Can I ask you, please, if you would like to move forward, those of you who are sitting in the chairs, feel free to occupy the tables. You'll have a much more enjoyable hour and a half if you make yourselves comfortable near the front. I'm used to doing this. This is what I do with my students. You know, don't sit in the back of the lecture theatre. Come to the front. Okay, this is the second session um, on challenging globalisation. And in this session we're focusing on governance. For some reason it seems common to ask lawyers to chair sessions on governance. And I think that's because um, governance is regarded as something akin to regulation. And regulation, I'm told, is the sexy way that young lawyers refer to law. But what we want to do in this session is actually take a much broader view of governance than that. And we want to look at trade issues, both from the international perspective and for their impact in local development. So what we have are um, a keynote speaker and two respondents our keynote speaker is Dr. Razin Sally. Uh, he's been at the LSE for over a decade now in the International Relations Department. He, his uh, research focuses on trade policy in Asia and on the WTO. And he writes on preferential trade agreements, the intellectual history of political economy, and the theory of commercial policy. His international links spread from Europe to Asia and North America. He is uh, one of the directors of the European Centre for International Political Economy, which is a new economic policy think tank based in Brussels. He's also a visiting professor at Sciences Po, an Associate Senior Fellow at Singapore National University. He's on the Academic Advisory Council of the Institute of Economic Affairs in London and on the Advisory Board of the Cato Centre for Trade Policy Studies in Washington. So with that kind of background, he's probably ideally placed to give us a provocative introduction to the issues of governing trade both international trade and local development. So, over to you, Razine.
Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and uh, good afternoon, fellow alumni of the LSE. Uh, I started uh, studying at the LSE at the tender age of 19 in the end of September 1984. Now, I didn't know I.G. Patel, but uh, my abiding memory of him was uh, his uh, introduction to, to us uh, rather intimidated uh, freshers. And he put us at our ease straight away by saying that he was a fresher just like us. He just started at the LSE uh, in, in the autumn of 1984. Um, well, to business. Uh, my my uh, talk today uh, is, is on trade policy in Asia. Uh, and l let, let me begin by, by setting the scene, and I'll refer to uh, a trilogy that Gunnar Myrdal, the famous uh, Swedish economist, published in 1968, I think it was, called The Asian Drama. Now, Professor Myrdal painted a very bleak picture of Asia then and its prospects. Uh, this was a continent that was trapped in poverty, uh, that had uh, pernicious historical colonial legacies, unequal exchange with the West, and uh, had myriad market failures. Now, the prescription to Professor Merdal to extricate Asia from this poverty trap was, first, a massive infusion of Western aid to plug a savings gap, and then, second, Soviet-style central planning in much of Asia, which included... Uh, highly protectionist regimes, import substitution in particular. Now, uh, in a cultural echo of those times, you will remember there was a book by V.S. Naipaul, the first in his trilogy on India, where he labeled India a broken, wounded civilization. Uh, one should also forget at the same time, one should also not forget at the same time, that China had just suffered the Great Leap Forwards, which was effectively the Great Leap Backwards, and then the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Napoleon famously said that China was a sleeping giant and it should not be awoken. I have come across sinologists, though, who said that Napoleon never said that. <laughs> but that's a different story. Now, these are popular image, images of Africa today, not of Asia. The reality, of course, is that we have seen first Japan and then Korea and Taiwan and then the Southeast Asian Tigers, along with Hong Kong, uh, breaking out of uh, isolation and plugging themselves into the world economy with huge success. And now we see something similar happening and resonating in, in South Asia. My initial point is that this is no accident, that this is very much a product of a change in policies, of policies of opening to world markets, of liberalization that is, uh, that have delivered the goods, more or less. Let me, as an academic, immediately qualify those statements by saying two things. Firstly, I am going to talk about globalizing Asia, and that is the people-abundant areas of East and South Asia. Uh, this is not happening in large swathes of North and West Asia, which remain largely non-globalized. Second point to make, of course, is that uh, there is no such thing as an Asian model. 
for there are vast differences in the size of countries, in their historical legacies, uh, in the way they operate a mix of state and market. And in many of the countries I'm going to talk about, uh, there is a lot of government intervention in the form of industrial policy and uh, other aspects of policy. But two generalizations, sweeping generalizations perhaps to start with, notwithstanding all these differences. The first one is this. What we have seen across East and South Asia is a move to more markets, to less, and certainly less arbitrary state intervention, and that includes liberalizing trade and foreign direct investment. Although the differences between the countries vary greatly. Second point to make is this. This is not just about dry economic numbers. It is about economic freedom. For what we are seeing, however patchily, is a big expansion in the personal freedoms of individuals to go about their everyday business in the world of production and consumption. Now, in some countries, this does not translate into political and civic freedoms, but what we have seen, uh, not least in China, is a vast expansion of economic freedom. That's really the backdrop I wanted to, to, to set up. Now, I'm going to talk specifically about what's happening in the WTO, what's happening with so-called free trade agreements, what's happening with the opening of China and its reverberating effect throughout the region, before I do that, uh, some, some broad facts and figures about Asia and globalization. Um, and I will try and flag some of the key issues involved, uh, particularly concerning trade and foreign direct investment. Um, well, the Prime Minister, in a public lecture he gave in Oxford, either earlier this year or sometime last year, talked not of the emergence of Asia in the world economy, uh, but of the re-emergence of Asia and India with it uh, in the world economy. And he made some reference to that uh, this morning. Let me take you very quickly through some, uh, some, some tables, uh, which you probably can't see at the back. Uh, but the gist of this one is that uh, in 1820, uh, around the time of the European takeoff, Asia, with about 60% of the world's population, uh, had a roughly corresponding figure of world's output. By 1950, it had shrunk. The Asian share in world GDP had shrunk to less than 20%. What we have seen since then is a rise to now close to 40% of world GDP at purchasing power parity. And uh, the forecasts are that by around 2030, we will see Asia accounting for over half of world GDP, back to its rightful place given its share of the world's population. And uh, this figure, uh, this chart here, uh, shows that by around mid-century, we will see in, in absolute terms that China and India will be the first and the third biggest economies in the world, although still much poorer than, uh, than other parts of the world. Now, uh, the upshot of all this is, is the following, particularly with the insertion of China and India into the world economy, 40% of humanity. We are seeing um, a wave of global economic integration probably bigger than anything we have seen 
since the last third of the 19th century. That is to say, since the insertion of the United States, uh, Germany, and Japan into the world economy, what we may be seeing is something even bigger than that. In other words, the biggest wave of global integration since the uh, Industrial uh, Revolution. Now, let me break that down a little bit in terms of the countries in, uh, in the region. Um, again, a table with lots of, lots of numbers, uh, which you, you can ignore. Let me just pick out some, some highlights. We shouldn't forget that uh, notwithstanding the rise of uh, India and China, Japan still accounts for about half of East and South Asian GDP combined. So Japan is still way ahead of the rest. What about China? Well, of course, it's catching up fast. China has displaced Japan as the third leading trading nation in the world. What is particularly important about China is that this country, with the biggest population in the world, in many ways looks like a small to medium-sized country in terms of its openness to the world economy. A trade-to-GDP figure of over 60%. Uh, China accounts for nearly half of foreign investment flows to, uh, to, to the developing world. In other words, it's become globally integrated in a very short space of time. In doing so, China is following not the Northeast Asian model, but more the Southeast Asian model. Because what we saw it with Hong Kong, with Singapore, and then the other ASEAN countries, is a rapid integration into global manufacturing markets in particular uh, in the 1970s through to the 1990s and indeed the present. And that is a story largely of opening to trade and opening to foreign direct investment. What about India? Well, the Indian column shows that uh, uh, the Indian figures on trade and FDI are actually much lower than they are for China uh, and for Southeast Asia. Uh, while India has come very far compared with where it was uh, going back to, say, 1980, it is still much less globally integrated uh, than the other two uh, regions uh, I mentioned. Um, how does all of that translate into a uh, picture of trade and investment flows in the region? Well, broadly speaking, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore are specializing and have to specialize much further in high-value, sophisticated goods and services. The ASEAN countries in between have to specialize in increasingly higher value goods and services, though that still leaves the poorer ones in Indochina, Vietnam comes to mind in particular, uh, who can actually concentrate on a labor cost, on a cheap labor advantage. China will continue for a long time to come to specialize in cheap labor manufactured exports and increasingly agricultural exports, because that will remain its advantage given its huge supply of cheap labor. The one brief point I want to make here about India is that uh, while the change of perception of India as a services leader is very welcome, I speak here, by the way, as someone who is half Sri Lankan. When I was growing up in Sri Lanka in the, early 19, in the 1970s, uh, India was looked down upon by Sri Lankans, and there was a certain fatalism about India. 
Now that pessimism and fatalism is really about Sri Lanka, but not about India. That is, of course, very good news for India. That said, let me speak frankly here, there is globalization hype in India because the nature of the growth is very lopsided and it doesn't benefit the broad majority of the population so far, unlike China and unlike Southeast Asia. The reason for that is quite straightforward. India should be doing what China and Southeast Asia have already done. That is to say, take peasants out of the countryside, put them into factories, into jobs that, that produce manufacturing goods, much of them for export, something similar with agriculture, and have a much job-richer environment in a fast-expanding services sector, which China is doing, but which India isn't doing. Uh, that is, I think, the, the Indian problem of the moment. How does all of that relate to uh, trade policy itself? Uh, and I have a table here on, on the tariffs in, uh, in, in the region. Well, again, the broad storyline is this. What you see is that Japan and the other advanced Northeast Asian countries have over decades, arrived at a situation where they are largely open in terms of their tariffs and their non-tariff barriers. In Southeast Asia, in the ASEAN countries, we saw a massive liberalization, especially in manufacturing markets in the 1980s and the 1990s, that has plugged them in to what is called a factory Asia phenomenon, especially in IT products and into global markets, although it has happened less in agriculture and in services. Hong Kong and Singapore, of course, uh, have, uh, have free trade policies, uh, more or less. China is, I think, a very interesting story here. Now, many people think that China's transition from the plan to the market has been gradual and incremental and reliant very much on industrial policy. I think that's looking at it very much from the wrong end of the pipeline or the telescope. In my view, the real story in China is one of massive liberalization, particularly since the early 1990s. For what we have seen in just over a decade is the biggest opening of an economy the world has ever seen. And what the figure on tariffs for China shows is that it has come down in more enormously. China is as open to the world economy now uh, as the ASEAN countries, pretty much, if you look at the simple tariffs. Uh, and that was happening through the 90s. It was locked in by China's commitments in the WTO, which are exceedingly strong, and it's gone further uh, since then. China, by the way, is more open on agriculture than Southeast Asia uh, and, uh, and India, and it is increasingly open in services too. India, again, the story is that while it has opened considerably compared with where it was in the early 1990s, the pace has been much slower than it has in Southeast Asia and China. And that is reflected in the pretty high tariff rate you see in India, which of course is much higher in agriculture than it is in manufacturing goods. Okay, uh, enough of all that. Let me uh, make a couple of generalizations from this, this broad story. The first one is this. While developing countries are now more important 
in the global economy in terms of their shares of trade and foreign investment. This is overwhelmingly an Asian story. The World Bank estimates that the countries that have globalized successfully, 85% of their population is in Asia, 75% is accounted for by China and India alone. Now, when it comes to the big debates of the day on the links between globalization, liberalization, growth, poverty reduction, the successful examples are not all, but overwhelmingly, the vast majority from parts of Asia and not from other parts of the world. So there is this big divergence happening within the developing world. The last point to make is this. What we are seeing now is an Asian supply shock. Now, Goldman Sachs talks of BRICS. The BRICS economies include Brazil and Russia. Uh, that is a bit misleading because this is primarily a story of India and China. And what I think we are seeing with a doubling roughly of the world's labor force is a much bigger shock to not only the countries of the West, and it's not just to people working in unskilled and low-skilled sectors, but increasingly to the middle classes uh, who have to compete with, uh, with products, goods and services coming from uh, developing Asia, and other developing countries who compete head-to-head, -head, in a sense, with these same products. Now, the risk is that they will block a further opening of the world economy, that there will be anti-reform coalitions, and that there will be a backlash in the West and in parts of the rest against this rising challenge from Asia. And this is the challenge precisely that the Prime Minister talked about uh, this morning. Let me now move on to uh, some of the little detail on uh, the WTO and FTAs and so on in my remaining time. Let me start with the WTO. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at the WTO. I get exasperated by it a lot of the time. Uh, there, is, there are two other WTOs, by the way. There is the World Tourism Organization. The WTO in Geneva sometimes resembles the World Tourism Organization. And uh, I think in uh, Singapore there was a convention held last year for something called the World Toilet Organization. The WTO sometimes resembles the World Toilet Organization, too. Uh, flippancy aside for a moment. Uh, what about the Doha Round and its prospects? The Doha Round has effectively collapsed. Can it be revived? Uh, for all the bureaucratic talk, I think not. I, am a, I have a down payment in Doha pessimism. Uh, I was recently in Mauritius, where the LSE presence is very strong, by the way. Uh, and in the National Museum in Port Louis, I saw a stuffed dodo. You will remember that the dodo went, became extinct, I think towards the end of the 16th century. Well, the Doha round is probably as dead as the proverbial dodo. Um, I may be wrong, we'll see, but I, I don't hold out any great hope for a revival of the Doha round this side of a new president in the White House in 2009. And even then I think it will be very difficult. What are the immediate consequences? First, 
we are, of course, seeing a proliferation of so-called free trade agreements, which I will talk about in just a moment. Second, I am less concerned about the lack of extra liberalization that the Doha Rand was supposed to deliver. I am much more concerned by a weakening of multilateral rules. If there is one thing the WTO is there for, it's to provide non-discriminatory rules for free-ish and fair-ish commerce uh, in the world. The danger is that the major players, developed and developing country players, including India, will begin to flout those rules. And then we will have more the power of the jungle rather than the power of rules. Uh, the final point I want to make is this, uh, as, a, as someone who also has a down payment in skepticism about international organizations, particularly within the UN system. The WTO is drifting increasingly in the direction of the easy politics of UN-style or World Bank-style aid agencies. That kind of politics is very easy, as we know. And it is drifting away from the harder politics of trade liberalization. So, what can be done to uh, uh, put the WTO on its legs again? Well, the problems with the WTO are twofold. The agenda is just too large, too unwieldy, and too contradictory. And secondly, decision-making has descended into a UN-style talking shop where even simple policy choices cannot be made. What needs to be done is the, that the agenda, firstly, has got to become uh, more tractable. It should concentrate on the bread and butter, that is to say, market access, liberalization, and the rules that underpin it. And secondly, in order to do that, decision-making has got to be effective again. Now, I take a, what an international relations speak would, call, would be called a realist position. I hope it's a realistic position on what needs to be done in the WTO, and I think Asia has a big part in this. About 50 countries, and that includes 20 developing countries, there or thereabouts, account for about 90% of global trade and foreign direct investment. These are the countries in coalitions of the willing, as it were, that should do the deals, and the rest should be allowed to free ride, more or less. Within that outer core, there is an inner core of about five or six, and they are the United States, the European Union, Japan, perhaps, and then China, India, and Brazil. They need to exercise collective leadership, as it were. How does Asia fit into the picture more specifically? I think it does in the following ways. India plus about 10 East Asian countries are active in the WTO and have been since the days of the Uruguay round. And they include the Southeast Asian countries, they include Hong Kong, now Taiwan, uh, Japan, and Korea. They include Australia and New Zealand going down to Oceania. And, of course, they include China. What about that inner core? Well, I think there are a couple of prerequisites. The first is the leadership of the United States. There is no substitute to the leadership of the United States in this regime as in many others. The problem is that the United States is often incapable of exercising such leadership. 
what is required in tandem with American leadership is China moving from the background to the foreground. So far, China has actually been very pragmatic and constructive and flexible in the WTO, unlike India, I hasten to add. And what is necessary is for China to be more upfront, rather than being in the background scenery, to, be, uh, to play an active leadership role. And that involves cooperation with the United States in particular. As far as India is concerned, let me just make the following brief comments. Uh, India has largely played a spoiler role, first in the GATT and now in the WTO. It is better now, in my view, than it was 10 or 20 years ago, but it is still largely defensive and negative. Uh, India is more the problem than the solution in the WTO. Now, politically, that's not surprising. If you have a government that can hardly reform at all at the center, including on trade liberalization, it is not surprising that it does little that's actually constructive in the WTO uh, and that it follows FTAs that are commercially virtually meaningless. So uh, India hopefully in due course will be part of a more a uh, productive coalition of the willing, but I don't hold out hopes for things changing anytime soon. Let me now move on to uh, free trade agreements, FTAs as they're called. Now, because the WTO is seen to be failing, uh, governments in the region, and there are very few exceptions, Mongolia is the only one I can think of, are resorting to FTAs, which they think can take liberalization further, deeper, wider, faster than in the WTO. Uh, we see a proliferation of FTAs in East and South Asia. At the latest count, there are about 20, with another 60 or so that are in the pipeline. Uh, now, that reflects pretty much what has already happened in other regions of the world economy. And everybody is playing this game, including, including India. Now, FTAs, if done right, if they are ambitious, if they are comprehensive, if they make a genuine advance on uh, WTO rules and commitments, might be a good thing. But these FTAs are very much the exception. There are effectively only three, the European Union, NAFTA, and Australia, New Zealand. The FTAs that are done by developing countries, this has already happened in Africa, it's already happened in Latin America, and I think, in other words, uh, they might make some progress in liberalizing trade in goods, but not as much as one could expect. They make next to no progress in liberalizing trade in services and in investment and in improving upon WTO rules in lots of other areas. And finally, they result in very complicated rules of origin requirements uh, where the devil really dies in, lies in the detail, and I won't uh, go into explanations here. The problem is that these rules of origin are creating a veritable noodle bowl of commercial obstruction in the region. And I have a few diagrams to prove the point. That is what the picture looks like in East Asia. 
all these crisscrossing overlapping FTAs with different requirements for how products can get into this or that market. This is how it already looks in Africa. And that's what it looks like in the Americas. Now, this doesn't make commercial sense. Let me give you an example. A Swedish company I know that manufactures lawnmowers. Uh, about 150 different types of lawnmower. Uh, it gets its components from about 200 companies that are dotted in 25 different countries around the world. Now, what this company wants is fair, predictable, simple rules of the game that are non-discriminatory. It does not want 25 different FTAs. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Let me now, gradually by way of conclusion, say, say this about what's happening outside trade negotiations. Now, as you see, I'm a pessimist. I don't think we can expect much liberalization to come out of the WTO in the foreseeable future. I don't think we can see much liberalization coming out of these FTAs in the future. However, I am more optimistic that we will see further liberalization by another route. And that is, shall I say, the 19th century method. The way the British liberalized in the 19th century was not via international organizations, and it wasn't conditional on others liberalizing. They liberalized by themselves, unilaterally. Uh, the Nike strategy, as it were, you just do it. Now, that was largely neglected in the 20th century, but in the last 20 years or so, what we have seen in the developing world is massive liberalization that has happened not in the WTO and not through FTAs, but largely via this unilateral route, and particularly so in Northeast and Southeast Asia. It's now happening in China, has been, especially in the past 15 years or so, uh, massively, and it is even happening, though more modestly, in India. So this is a kind of decentralized way of liberalizing, outside negotiations and international bureaucracies that is progressively emulated uh, around the region and perhaps around the world. Now, my point to you is this. If we are to expect trade and associated investment liberalization in the future, it's unlikely to come in a major way from negotiations. It's more likely to come from a Chinese engine that will concentrate minds elsewhere, not least here in India and also in Southeast Asia. <clears throat> so, let me just flag three priorities for trade policy in the region after the WTO. The first one is this, to put the WTO on its legs again Coalitions of the willing are needed, and the centerpiece of that has got to be cooperation between the United States and China. Secondly, on FTAs, caution should be exercised in going ahead with what are politically motivated but commercially unserious agreements. And if they are to go ahead, they should be serious and have a sense of economic strategy. Here again, China sets 
the signal. If China does FTAs the dirty way, others will do it. If China uh, has more sense about FTAs, others might have more sense too. The third point is that it's vital, more important than the WTO and the FTAs, for that Chinese engine of unilateral liberalization to continue. Because if it doesn't, there is no substitute. However, that engine is not pre-programmed. Now already, I noticed this in, in my trips to China in the past year or so, the political space for further liberalization and further structural reforms at home is smaller. There is a bit of a backlash. There is more caution about going ahead with further liberalization. That is not helped by China bashing in the United States and in the European Union in particular. It would be helped if the EU and the United States deepened their constructive engagement, as it were, with China, not just on the economic issues, but on a broad range of foreign policy issues uh, too. I have almost finished, uh, you will be glad to hear. Uh, let me uh, ascend from uh, the, the, the valleys of trade policy to, to the Olympian heights of, well, the bigger picture. And I will just list uh, some, some, some priorities uh, in bullet point fashion. First is this. Uh, there is a case for further liberalization of trade, of investment, also of the movement of people, which the Prime Minister mentioned this morning. And I think that this agenda should be less taken hostage by the vagaries of trade negotiations and linked better to essentially domestic economic reform agendas. Uh, and this involves a very complicated set of issues of uh, things like public procurement, services, investment, and lots of other things that relate to the fabric of domestic policies and institutions where, of course, the politics of reform uh, are much, much more difficult uh, than they are for simple tariff liberalization. Second point is how all of this relates to political systems. Authoritarianism in China versus democracy in India, for example. A point for discussion, perhaps. I've got no time to go into it here. Thirdly, macroeconomic policies, which I haven't mentioned so far. Uh, pressures of protectionism uh, are made worse when there are global macroeconomic imbalances and serious fault lines in fiscal and monetary policies around the world. The main problem here is essentially a one where the United States saves too little and China saves too much. Uh, these have to be unwound. Uh, in some kind of orderly fashion if protectionism is not to get out of control. And very finally, uh, all of what I've said depends very much on a reasonably stable framework of international relations, international politics. Uh, none of this kind of progress uh, to integrate the region and to integrate the region with the world is going to be facilitated by unstable politics in the region and beyond. Now, in order to maintain this global pax, as it were, it needs, in the first instance, the right kind of U.S. leadership. There is no substitute for that. It needs constructive engagement among uh, both 
the established as well as the rising powers. And finally, it needs a viable multilateralism, international institutions that work. Now, I am not a fan of something called global governance. I think that's largely chatter, much of it academic chatter at that. I am in favor of multilateral institutions that have perhaps modest but realistic means to achieve modest but realistic ends. And I see the WTO in that light rather than as some kind of instrument of global governance for which it is singularly ill-equipped, as is the UN system. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosine. That was um, very provocative, as you'd promised. I thought it was going to be provocatively pessimistic, but we got a glimmer of optimism, I think, at the end. So the bad news on international arrangements and international organizations, the bad news on free trade agreements, and then the good news on, I suppose, reinventing 19th century national practices. I'd like to introduce um, our first respondent, Dr. Munir Majid, who is the chairman of Malaysian Airlines. It's a real pleasure to introduce him because I think we can justifiably class him as one of our own. He did both an undergraduate degree in economics and a PhD in international relations at the LSE and then also taught at the LSE for a number of years. Not all that many, actually. We didn't keep him for very long. He then went off to bigger and better things and had um, what seems to me to be a remarkably varied career. Uh, he was um, a research analyst for Day We Europe, working from London. He left that to become um, a journalist with the New Straits Times Press and progressed there to become the group editor. Having got to the top of that organization, he left to become the CEO of a small merchant bank, which under his, uh, chairman, uh, under his executiveship became um, one of Malaysia's leading merchant banks, the Commerce International Merchant Bank. He left that to become the first and founding executive chairman of the Securities Commission and served there for two terms. During that time and afterwards, he served on various governmental boards and committees, took on various non-executive directorships and chairmanships, and now is chairman of Malaysian Airlines, as I said. As well as doing that, uh, he is a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. He writes and has a TV program for the Malaysian press and the Malaysian TV. So well-placed to give us his views on uh, trade. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's a privilege for me to be speaking at this LSE Asia Forum and I thank you for being here and 
I take this opportunity uh, to share with you uh, some thoughts with respect to uh, international trade and local development. Uh, first of all, I do not wish uh, to, to respond uh, as a respondent uh, point by point or in an inordinately long fashion uh, to Dr. Razin's presentation beyond uh, making three remarks. First, uh, to get uh, something uh, or somebody out of the way, which is B.S. Naipaul. Uh, of course, uh, B.S. Naipaul wrote first about India, uh, his book, An Area of Darkness, uh, where, you know, he consigned India uh, to a heap, more or less, uh, and in that book, uh, many of you will recall, uh, there was a thread of, of some resentment because I think his brandy was confiscated at that time of, uh, I think it was prohibition in India. And so that didn't put uh, Naipaul in good heart, uh, you know, as he toured India. Uh, then, admittedly, uh, in a at a stage of development at which he can perhaps with some little justification, describe it as an area uh, of darkness. Uh, but I think even Naipaul, since then, has had to change you know, his views on India because India has come along and has uh, changed and developed, uh, uh, as we heard uh, from the Prime Minister and also from Danny earlier on, despite all the uh, blemishes and remaining problems uh, that face uh, this country. Now, secondly, uh, in respect of the Doha round and um, the multilateral talks, I'm no particular expert of, and I have no special familiarity uh, with uh, what has been described uh, by, uh, by Dr. Razin uh, it looks like uh, it is not quite uh, going uh, to happen in the way that it was conceived, it, given the size of the agenda and the inability of uh, some number of countries, India included, uh, to uh, agree on certain basics, agriculture being a sticking point, I believe, uh, so far as uh, India is concerned, but he's a greater expert on that and I don't think I would want to, 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 to wade into, into that area. Uh, now, thirdly, and it is from here that I will actually share my views with you. Uh, thirdly, I think uh, there is in a presentation, uh, in an academic presentation, a, a, certain, a certain orderliness and a certain... Uh, assumption of structures and time periods and change that take place within uh, that framework of orderliness and I'm sure even the academics will agree uh, that uh, such uh, orderliness is purely a tool of analysis but not a reflection of reality of how things change of what happens when things uh, change. Uh, we try to extract from those changes an orderly analysis, but we must still 
step in again and see the disorderliness of, of change. How we talk about bottom-up, top-down and so on, it doesn't really happen all the way bottom-up or top-down. And it comes sideways at different angles and, and, and so on and so forth. And proceeding from, from this point, I would like then to share with you how international trade and local development uh, has taken place uh, in my country and also uh, in the industry that I'm involved in and, and how the changes I describe that happen in a haphazard and, and very often uncontrollable fashion uh, take place. And sometimes these changes uh, take place without full realization that change is taking place. And there is thus no particular resistance because benefits are seen. And uh, sometimes these changes uh, challenge, challenge existing uh, modes of doing things and are discomforting, uncomfortable, and to some extent resisted. Now, of course, uh, in Malaysia, if I come start by my country, uh, in Malaysia, uh, we have benefited tremendously uh, from international uh, trade. I think, uh, despite, and some, many of you, I think, will not remember it, uh, despite the gripe about terms of trade, you know, which was one of the big things in the 1970s, particularly 60s, 70s, when UNCTAD was, you know, very much the flag carrier of, of, of these things. Despite the gripe about the terms of trade, the positive relationship between uh, international trade uh, and, and, and local development uh, is historically uh, well documented uh, in my country and I'm sure in many others. You know, in Malaysia, as you would know, there was uh, the development of the tin, uh, rubber, uh, and subsequently oil palm uh, industries for the export market, which led to the opening up of the country uh, through an excellent network of roads, railways, and ports uh, to service the mines and estates. And then with the locals also getting into the cultivation of the tree crops uh, uh, through smallholder, uh, smallholder sector, uh, despite the long gestation uh, periods uh, for, for these uh, tree crops. And then at the same time, there was also uh, development of activities uh, with uh, backward and, and, and forward uh, linkages, uh, fabrication of machineries uh, for mining of tin and processing of rubber, palm oil, and which are backward uh, linkages. And, and the forward ones, I mean, would have involved... Uh, the pewter industry, pewter ware, rubber, rubber goods, uh, palm oil uh, refining. All this is captured actually in a PhD thesis by, by, by John Tobin, which has since been published uh, uh, into a book. Uh, then, of course, in Malaysia's development and its relationship in uh, international trade uh, came the export-oriented uh, manufacturing uh, in the 70s, 
the best example of which is the manufacture of electronic components. Uh, it is extremely uh, labor intensive and socially, in terms of local uh, development, it, was, it greatly reduced uh, unemployment uh, in Malaysia. Uh, as we moved along, though, uh, I mean, this is an area which many people in Malaysia and perhaps abroad in other uh, developing countries described as, 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 as the great era of development uh, in Malaysia. Uh, this was the Mahade years. Uh, the Mahade years, to my mind, in terms of development, I wouldn't go into the politics, we can spend the whole, the whole day talking about it, but in terms of economic development, I think it's quite mixed, uh, in my view, uh, in terms of his contribution to the development of Malaya, Malaysia. I think one of the things that we did not do was that we did not graduate fast enough, soon enough, to the next level, now beyond uh, the manufacture of electronic components uh, mainly, we allowed a free flow of, of, of unskilled labor uh, to come in uh, all too easily, and this became easy for people not to move up. And there was a shortage uh, of engineers and IT specialists. Again, uh, did not allow because unskilled labor was there and the activity was carrying on, uh, didn't uh, allow or prepare us enough uh, for the future needs uh, uh, up, upscale. And at the same time, in the Mahade years, there was this massive infrastructure uh, development uh, which took place in Malaysia. What uh, some of the things we talk about here in terms of what uh, India uh, may lack uh, in terms of airports, uh, uh, in terms of roads, uh, we got them uh, in Malaysia uh, in those years. Sometimes with a vengeance, we get, instead of one tower, we get twin towers. And, uh, and, and, and uh, there was a lot of infrastructure. But the thing about infrastructure, domestic infrastructure, was in many senses, in terms of international trade, it was not a tradable hmm, item in the sense that you don't have to fight in the international market except for finance. If you finance that infrastructure development from foreign sources, you do not trade it. And therefore, you do not encourage the kind of, 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 of competitiveness, uh, a ruthlessness uh, that you would have if you were in trading. And you see in the Mahade years, for example, some of the uh, failures, uh, certainly lack of success stories, uh, as in the motor car industry or in steel, uh, because these are internationally competitive products and you can only have them grow in your country if you are not competitive by protecting them. And such protection does not give rise to competitiveness and as liberalization comes at you, you're found short and these industries subsequently suffer after having had such heavy investment in the initial years uh, to develop them. And so there's a question mark, I say, uh, in terms of our positioning to take advantage uh, of international trade. The second question mark uh, in the Mahade years is, is, is this, the fact is 
we are asking ourselves, where is Malaysia now? We've gone a long way. We've come a long way. Where is Malaysia now? Uh, we, have, we are really excellent in the hard infrastructure, uh, but we're not so well placed in what was called invisible or uh, what's called the soft uh, infrastructure in this next stage of the knowledge economy, the competitive world that, that we see. And part of our disability to compete effectively arises from political and social policies that may have given rise to a sense to, 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 to an ethic of dependence hmm? uh, uh, to an expectation of privilege uh, which leaves you uh, less able uh, to compete when the time comes. The whole notion of having such socio-economic policies is to make you better able to compete. But what has happened up to now is that it has made you better able to want to be dependent. And that is not a good thing in a world where, where there is such a heavy uh, emphasis on human capital and such great need for talent. And I think uh, in terms of international trade and local development today, India uh, presents a case of, of something happening right at the top, uh, 200 million people perhaps uh, at, uh, in, that, uh, in that upper economy. Uh, 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 Malaysia, we've had all the, the, the basic uh, infrastructure and the poverty rate is very low, less than 5%. Uh, but at the top, we're not so strong. And if you compete against uh, Singapore, uh, they've come out of 97, uh, 98, uh, really identifying what is needed, where they move to, what industries they move up to in international trade. And there's been service-oriented, people-driven, and, and, and human capital uh, uh, sort of emphasis, emphasized. And one thing about people who have achieved that, for the, the leaders who have achieved that, for the economies, is that when we talk about human capital, its development, the search for talent, the thing that marks out some countries as they move up the ladder, move up the scale, is also political human capital. It's very important that the political leadership is, 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 is uh, disciplined enough, committed enough, focused enough, uh, thorough and, 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 uh, thorough and, and efficient enough to achieve certain objectives. Your Prime Minister is one such person who exudes such leadership. Of course, Deng Xiaoping, of course, is the epitome, perhaps, and of course, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, uh, in Singapore. And Singapore, uh, Kishore, uh, if I may, I mean, has also been extremely good, perhaps more than anybody else in recent economic history, at leveraging of many things, leveraging of its talent, leveraging of international talent. The Genome Institute in Singapore, which is now very well known, is actually 170 persons foreign. Uh, Singapore immigration companies, only 
of companies have problems with Singapore immigration or foreign companies. So they're focused. They do, they know they need foreign talent, and if they need it, they use it. At the same time, people say it's a concrete jungle. It's boring, uh, you know, there's no freedom. Well, they can leverage off Malaysia. People can go and visit Sabah, take a break from concrete jungle Singapore, or go to, you know, Indonesia. So this leveraging is also important. It is not necessarily regionalization as such. Uh, it is an ability of a, a country at a centrifugal point uh, to see the advantages it can get from the others around it. And Singapore does this, I think, uh, with a vengeance and, and highly uh, successfully. Now, coming back to, to, to Malaysia, I mean, we are trying to move up the ladder. We are trying to move up the scale. Uh, but we have certain disadvantages, as I mentioned, uh, lack of past competitiveness uh, and uh, sort of a, 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 a policy uh, that leads to a, sense of, uh, to, to a sense of entitlement rather than uh, being competitive, uh, make people uh, more dependent uh, rather than uh, aggressive and, and, and competitive. Uh, at the same time, we had English at one time in Malaysia, very good English. We lost that edge as well. We had a, an education policy that, that moved into, into, non, uh, into, into the national language uh, at, at, uh, at uh, sort of in disregard of, of English. The question came up in the previous session about language. Uh, whatever it is, as you compete, even if you try to develop a store of knowledge in your local language or languages, you can't wait for that to happen. You've got to move on and move fast. And if you had English, and if you have English, you are already moving on and moving ahead as others try uh, to play catch up. And, 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 and we lost, and we lost that. And so it is important then uh, to, to realize uh, how to respond to challenges and not look at them as something threatening you, but something that you must react to, so to make you competitive, whether or not WTO happens, uh, uh, whether or not this or that happens, things, as to quote Rumsfeld, things happen. Uh, and you have to, to react. You have, you have to, 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 to get on uh, uh, in, this, in this world. And uh, in my industry, airline industry, tourism industry, it's coming at you before you, you, you can say, you know, uh, Jack Robinson. It's coming at you and an industry which is intensely competitive. Perhaps even before financial services, the world's first truly globalized industry, the airline industry. Even if the sense of competitiveness is not the same, policies differed. Uh, was not open skies, it was, you know, closed skies, dark skies, whatever you want to call them, but that is beginning to change. But even before that change, your product, your international product, had to meet international standards because you're serving an international market, like it or not. I mean, there was a time when people were trying to pressurize, you know, our airlines not to serve alcohol or liquor or whatever. Uh, Muslim country, etc., etc., but you are in an international business. Uh, in fact, uh, some, some say, you know, whether our food is halal and our, 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 our 
pep in crew say, yes, of course, this halal, you know, we are, you know, national airline of Muslim country. And then they say, why are you serving alcohol? And our cabin crew say, we are also an international airline. And so you cannot, uh, when you're competing uh, in the international environment, come up with products uh, which do not fit uh, into uh, international uh, requirements. Uh, and, and so, but when I say the airline industry is truly globalized, uh, I think we kid ourselves if we think it is globalized all the way through, like we think countries are truly globalized all the way through, because the airline industry, at least as full-service carriers, comprise at least four types of activities. Of course, you have the, 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 the flight and cabin crew. I mean, they are very international, highly qualified competing internationally. Then you have the engineering and maintenance. They have to make sure nothing goes wrong with the aircraft. The engines are working well and the standards are very international. And the safety standards, the security standards must, must be very international. But then you have the ground staff, the curbside people. They are very local in their, in their, in their worldview because they do not get exposed. Uh, to this international market. So you might fall short if your curbside uh, uh, standards are uh, also not good enough. And then, of course, the fourth area is the sales and marketing and, and administration. And these tend to be in uh, the airline industry, if they were previously under government, stodgy and, and uh, inefficient and bureaucratic. That's got to change. So, as I say, all these changes to meet competition do not happen at one fell swoop and different parts of a country and industry respond differently and even within a particular industry like the airline industry their different parts respond uh, 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 differently and now you have these opportunities coming at you the opportunities coming at you is the WTO that uh, which is not the World Trade Organization which is the tourism industry and that is going to be a massive industry uh, which already comprises, I think, well past about 35% of trade in receipts in trade and services and is expected, uh, according to WTO figures, to, have to reach about 1.56 billion arrivals by the year 2020, of which 400 million is going to be in the Asia-Pacific of which most of that traffic is going to be intra-regional. And this is going to be a massive opportunity and countries who, who, who have good networks, uh, communication networks, uh, airlines, hotels and facilities with no sense of reticence or reservation about interna internationalizing you know, that industry. If you have a reticence about whether people can be seen in swimsuits and stuff like that, uh, you're going to be losing out. Mm -hmm. And so, I think international trade, local development, particularly in the service sector, uh, have an impact on the mind, the infrastructure of the mind. And that is the greatest change, I think, uh, that is taking place locally as a result of the flows that are happening uh, in the world just now and it's likely to grow manifold in the years to come.
I thank you for your attention. Thank you, um, Munir. Um, that was a nice reminder, I think, that when we're discussing international trade and local development, the objects being traded matter. They matter when we're thinking about the international rules that might apply, and they matter when we're thinking about the benefits that can be delivered locally. So, for example, one of the contrasts that's often drawn between India and China is that China's manufacturing base allows it to deliver benefits more broadly to its population than does India's advantages in uh, IT development and the knowledge economy. And so that leads me to introduce our second respondent, Kieran Karnik. He's the president of the National Association of Service and Software Companies. You can see why we've chosen him as an appropriate respondent. This is the premier trade body and the Chamber of Commerce for the IT software and services in industry in India. And in that role, this means that Kieran works closely with both uh, industry members and with Indian central and state governments to formulate the policies and strategies that are designed to advance this sector, both locally and internationally. Uh, he has done a lot of good work in that area, as recognized by the DataQuest IT Person of the Year Award given to him in 2005, and Business Week has named him as one of the stars of Asia. So he seems the right person to talk to us about uh, what Danny Kwa calls the weightless economy. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indeed a pleasure to be here, and uh, I want to thank LSE for giving me this opportunity. I want to spend a few minutes, I know we're behind time, so I'll make my remarks brief. I want to spend a few minutes sharing some thoughts and comments with regard to things that, as you might say, do not matter but are more of mind, speak of services and things that are not physical. But I want to spend a moment or two just making two comments which might put this thing into context. And I mention this because for many, many people, the very mention of India means an economy that's closed. And I do want to look back a few centuries, and that's not so long certainly in the world's history nor in Indian history, when India was a major global trader and when global trade was open and not constrained by national boundaries or restrictions. Trade and people moved up and down freely, and India traded very, very actively with Europe, with Africa, and of course with Southeast Asia. Uh, part of the exports were cultural, but a great deal were physical entities and matters. And uh, a lot has been written about those times, and certainly for those of you who want a rather entertaining look at it, you might want to look at Amitav Ghosh's In an Antique Land, which Know, presents it in a nice historical context. In contrast, the second comment I want to make again in context is something which people from my generation, and I see many people from my generation here in India, would recognize straight away that, you know, we grew up in what you would call a siege mentality. 
a natural outcome of a few centuries of colonial rule where the sense of it may not be articulated, may not be open, but the sense of it was the world is out to get us, so we better watch out. And we erected barriers, many of them were barriers related to economic tariffs so that we could protect ourselves. And I mentioned this, for most of you would be familiar, the context of saying that colonial rule in India began with commercial presence, the East India Company. And that's something that's probably somewhere deeply embedded in our subconscious, which made us very wary of foreign companies, foreign investment, foreign goods coming in. Started with the freedom movement, with the Swadeshi movement, which was really something made here. And that's just contextual in terms of where we've started from and where we've come to. And to me, the biggest change, and I missed the Prime Minister's speech this morning, but as all of you would know, the biggest change was not what he began to bring about in 91. That was a change in economic policy. But the bigger change has been in the mindset. When I speak to young Indians today, and that is why I mentioned the siege mentality, I see an attitude that is far more gung-ho, sometimes overdone, sometimes hyped, as Razim rightly said. But it is an attitude of saying, hey, we can compete and we can take on the world. We don't have to watch out. The world better watch out. And to me, this is in many ways refreshing, though somewhat worrying, but it's a contrast from what I grew up with. And I think that is what needs to be kept in mind when we look at issues related to WTO. You have a whole generation that's grown up very worried, bred on protectionism, concerned about what things might do. And in complete contrast, you have the young generation, the new industries, the sunrise industries in India, which are willing, wanting, and able to take on the world. And it's this little dialectics between these two that seems to affect trade policy. As was rightly pointed out, India has been considered a spoiler. Partly true, partly I think unfairly. It just happens that Indians are far more articulate and probably more verbose than Brazilians, who also might be considered spoilers, and so Indians come out as the bad guys. But it's true that our role in the WTO negotiations for many years was really of blocking, of being defensive. It seems to me that has changed, and I have the good fortune of not speaking for the government, so I speak as an outsider, but I think that's changed and changed quite substantially. It's now a matter of using certain things for negotiation. For example, many of our unilateral steps have been way, way beyond what our commitments are, which is an indication of where we are going, but clearly also an indication that we won't make commitments till we get something in return for what we give, which is what all countries do. Part of the bigger basket is including things like NAMA, agriculture, with services. And that's complex because if countries that have 3, 4, 5 persons of population living off agriculture are unwilling to bend, then there's no possibility of a country where 60% of the people are dependent on agriculture making changes. And I think that's realism which needs to be recognized. I don't see any possibility of any movement on agriculture till the big countries which have so few people working on agriculture make drastic changes. I don't see it happening. Again, I speak from the outside, but I don't see it happening. On the other hand, areas in which me and my association are more directly concerned, areas related to services, I see tremendous possibilities because India's stance on those which may seem to outsiders somewhat closed, particularly in areas like legal services, retail, entertainment, are, it seems very clear to me, really negotiation ploys. You can see that in retail, 
where we've already de facto opened up. You can see that in a whole host of other areas where without making commitments at WTO, the stated policies in the government have made it very much easier for foreign investment, be it in telecom or entertainment. In fact, in many of these cases, if you do a like-for-like -like comparison, the Indian position is far ahead of those in many developed countries. There's also the other part of these negotiations, which often don't get mentioned, so I just want to make a passing comment on those. There are a lot of restrictions which are not to do with countries importing goods, but to do with countries exporting goods. And a whole host of them that affect us as we move to a high technology regime in this country, where high technology is used, even in a poor country, in a very major way. You can see severe controls in the area of energy, energy of the kind which is critical for India, which is nuclear energy. You see strong controls in an area in which India has commercial possibilities, namely space technology, where there are tremendous controls on what goes out from other countries. You see controls in the area of computers, where there are speeds that are specified, where you can't import computers from some countries. Many of these are known, but I do want to put them at the table to sort of balance what the negotiating process is going to be like. So if there's an opening up in, in the services area, there has to be some give on other areas. But within the sphere of services itself, we are beginning to see very serious restrictions being put on other countries. In fact, many of us have argued for a complete openness. Some of us have suggested that we need to sign a free trade agreement in services, a genuine one, and I take you know, the point Razin made about some of these being really politically driven, not economically, a genuine free trade agreement in services with the EU or with the US. And many of us are actively pushing for it within the government. I'm not sure what stance they'll formally take, but informally there is a lot of traction on this. However, it means that countries on the other side need to remove their non-tariff barriers, which are very serious. Their non-tariff barriers in so-called mode four, which is movement of people, there are both quantitative and qualitative restrictions, which doesn't apply to goods where you're not putting quantitative restrictions. There are caps on visas. There are problems of delays. And that to me is like saying we are open on agriculture, but I'm going to check pesticide residue when your ship docks at the port, and I'll take six months to do that. I think the kind of problems we face in the industry I work with are similar. If somebody is not given a visa in a matter of a week or two weeks, the customer at the other end is not going to wait. He or she is going to go somewhere else because their software needs maintenance. And if you can't get a maintenance guy out there when the person is needed, then they're going to go elsewhere. So these have become very, very serious non-tariff barriers, as are things like mutual recognition agreements. The mutual recognition agreements need to be negotiated, but very clearly we have a problem, particularly in the United States, where each state, each of the 50 states, has its own regulations. And you have to see how to overcome all these complexities in the process of moving ahead in services. But I'm not a pessimist. I do think, despite what I said, I just wanted to share some of these comments on where, from our perspective, we see these negotiations and the problems and the difficulties. I'm very optimistic. I do think that around the world, there's much greater recognition of the fact that this is not a zero-sum game. It's fine politically to say that when work moves, then jobs are moving, but I think everybody knows, and there are enough very good economic studies to show that's not so. There's a certain feedback cycle that brings things back, that brings business back, that brings jobs back. And I think there is recognition of this, which at the economic and even at the political decision-making sphere 
is getting recognized. And therefore, I think very optimistically that we are going to see movement ahead, especially in the services area. Services have somewhat unfortunately been held captive to the larger disagreements, particularly in areas like agriculture, which are not big, as big on international trade as services, and certainly don't have the same potential for the future as services have. And we are hopeful that as we can begin to get some of these things tied up, we will see movement in services. But I see in a practical sense that the movement is more likely to be in terms of possible bilateral or plurilateral agreements rather than across the board WTO agreements. The WTO process itself, as was pointed out in e earlier, was, is slow and difficult. It is getting admittedly in a UN-like process where stances are taken and there are political positions. But I think at the level of multilateral or plurilateral agreements, there is very good prospects, especially in the services area, driven also by the fact that the developed countries have a population that's aging. They do see the problem of having shortages of labor, and they do see the need, if they don't want to import people, then to export work. And that, bluntly put, is the choice, import people or export work. Importing people in large number upsets the social fabric, much easier to export work. Technology makes it feasible and possible. And we're seeing some exciting things happening in that area of how services are transforming what is being done. How we see more and more physical entities which are in the sphere of atoms being converted to bits. Things that had to be done physically can now be done electronically. And you see this happening in a whole host of areas the most outstanding one of in, in recent has been in the area of manufacture, where rather than manufacturing a prototype in metal and doing it somewhere, you can, in effect, manufacture it virtually on the computer and simulate everything you need to do a prototype. You can simulate all the tests. And therefore, work of this kind, which involved making a physical prototype, can now be done anywhere in the world by just sending out the details and simulating it on a computer and doing the testing. And we are going to clearly see much more of this transition from goods into services, from manufacturing into virtual processing. And that means that movement of work is going to be much easier, much quicker, more economical. But it calls for a new outlook. It calls certainly for a change in the way we traditionally look at these things. And also calls very importantly for an understanding of the slow dissolving of the lines or the moving of the lines between goods and services. I don't think you can any longer sharply demarcate between goods and services. And that is going to have a substantial impact on negotiation process as we move forward in the globalization process. Uh, I want to stop there. I know we're running out of time. I want to make sure we have enough time for questions, and I hand back to the chairman. Thank you. Where I, oh, is this working? Can you hear? Okay, it's over to you. I'm afraid that um, could I put some of the blame on you. You arrived late back from lunch and probably we took slightly too much time uh, talking to you. So what I'm going to do is take five questions, one round of questions, because I imagine you also want to have afternoon tea, and then give each of the speakers one sentence reply, and I mean one sentence like my English teacher used to define it. Put a full stop after three lines, Sarah. So, can we do that? 
Um, there are roving microphones, so don't start your question until you get a microphone. Uh, once you've got one, can you introduce yourself and then ask your question briefly? Right, I'll go all the way across the room. Over here. Uh, I'm from Oxfam, India. I'd like to react to Dr. Sally. Uh, India, a spoiler. We have to defend our people from the most insidious kind of agricultural agreements and uh, that's not spoiling. Coalition of the willing, it sounds more like EU and the US incorporating China to gang up on the rest. So you get a gang of three instead of four. And a lawnmower company as an example and Nike of anything good really surprises me. <laughs> oh. I hope they get easier. Oh, okay, why don't we do it the other way? You first and then you next. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, I'm Anupam Kishore. I'm a student at LSE. Uh, my question to Dr. Razin Sally. Uh, I first of all thank and uh, compliment you for branding India as a scholar in WTO and uh, uh, GATT. Uh, but my simple question to you is, how do you define the term spoiler? How do you define the term spoiler? Is it someone, is it the country which raises the concern of not only India but of entire developing countries? One which gives the intellectual input to the entire developing world? or the countries which is not concerned about the basic issues like agriculture, like movement of people as our Prime Minister was telling it uh, today morning, or uh, the question can be put in another way, is which is more important, the concern of 60% of people of the developing world or 3% of people of the developed world? Thank you. Uh, Kishore Mamubani, Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Singapore. Munir, thank you very much for praising Singapore so publicly. Deeply appreciated. My question to Dr. Razin is, you advocate that China should play a bigger leadership role in world trade. Yes, on trade grounds, China will be happy to do so. But on geopolitical grounds, China knows that if it tries to push for any kind of global leadership, the United States will get alarmed, the anti-China lobby in Washington, D.C. will wake up, and for that reason, on geopolitical grounds, as you know, China takes a low profile. So how do you balance the geopolitical and trade uh, considerations in China's policies? And I was going to ask the two other panelists whether India or Southeast Asia would also be happy to accept China's leadership in the trade field. Two more. Right at the very back. Good afternoon. Uh, I am Sukhvir Chaudhary. I am a Gurukul Chinging Scholar. Now again a question to Dr. Sally. Uh, you stated that uh, lots of uh, agreements uh, Bipartite agreements have been uh, made by third world countries. 
and uh, they should india should come down to and uh, india's uh, played a spoiler in wto now i want your comments on the first uh, thing uh, i think the largest number of uh, double agreements one to one agreements have been signed by us i think that's my information information secondly uh, as far as uh, us is concerned and the developed world is concerned they have developed you almost spoke like george soros i was in london a few days back in um, uh, in german uh, i think it was uh, a british german forum and he said that china is putting 600 power plants in china should be stopped and us can stop it now this cannot be a model of development or of trade even for uh, for countries which are not developed which can be stopped and which have to be told how to go about it your comments lucky last <laughs> sorry we could have six i suppose couldn't we uh, my name is anil sharma i am from national council of applied economic research and i had the opportunity to comment on razin's paper some time back today of course you know his uh, position was somewhat muted uh, but i think you know uh, as uh, mr kiran karnik and some of the comments that you have really heard have put things in context one thing i think you know that uh, again uh, for uh, putting i think you know your view on india as a spoiler in the context is that i think you have also to look at india's position in the doha round of negotiations i think you know from 2001 onward and if you really look at you know the evolution of india's position from 2000 onward uh, you would i think you know uh, would be forced to i think change your i think you know stance on india being spoiler in the wto trade negotiations Thank you, thank you very much. Go on, I can't resist enthusiasm. <laughs> Last one. Again, the question is for the thought-provoking uh, talk from Dr. Rajin. I am Professor Joshi from Indian Institute of Foreign Trade. Uh, new delhi uh, you have talked about uh, uh, given various figures where in india's integration as far as the globalization is concerned you have highlighted is uh, much lower and you have also talked about uh, uh, what has happened is especially uh, india has come out the, the way of uh, development in india and china have been quite uh, distinct uh, we have not been uh, uh, that uh, Uh, made progress or that competitive as far as the physical infrastructure is concerned but what india has got a competitive edge is as far as the intellectual infrastructure is concerned and i think it has not happened by way of an accident it has been by way of the commitment of the government of india on the primary education and the health and the benefit which we are reaping after the 50 years from now and so far the traditional theories of trade of the comparative advantage right from the adam smith ricardo and then the 
the, the, the international product life cycle kind of a theory, which says the comparative advantage basically shifts from the, the, the work which was basically a blue-collared job. Now probably the time has come when the comparative advantage is shifting not only from the blue-collared but it is in the white-collared job. And it is uh, likely to affect uh, not only the grassroots kind of a laborer in, wherein the margins were lower, but especially in the, in the key areas where margins were higher, especially for the U.S. and could be for some other European countries, which always thought that the competitive advantage is going to be in the high margin areas of the knowledge-intensive industry. And I think India need not go forward. We need to go a century backward, wherein we were a knowledge-intensive society and free trade was there. And if you look into the GATS agreement, uh, the, the, you are talking about opening of the goods and services, but I think the mode 4 under the GATS is still wherein the movement of the natural person is, uh, uh, still remains a grey area with all the high-income countries. I, I repeat that I don't say developed countries, high-income countries. Uh, uh, another thing which I no, no, no. like to say... No, no, no. That's it. No. <laughs> Madam, last, last no, point. No, no. Last question. <laughs> last, last question. No, no. Done. Okay, you've got 30 seconds each. I promise you can pursue these people at, at afternoon tea if they don't give you a decent answer in 30 seconds. Um, we'll do it in reverse order, I think. Kieran first. <laughs> Two sentences. First, China leadership, uh, I think difficult because their focus is on manufacturing. India is focusing far more on services and knowledge, so I would see some difficulty in accepting that as a global way forward, and yes, there would be some worries. Second, a passing comment, partly facetious, but you know, I, I, I might uh, spare Dr. Sally there for a lot of the umbrage which my Indian colleagues seem to have taken. You know, to me, a spoiler in an automobile is something that gives it stability and keeps <laughs> it moving forward. So. Right. Uh, I think most of the questions were directed One at, uh, or comments were directed <laughs> at Dr. Razin, uh, and he's had an earful from the floor. Uh, I would like to say in response to many of the points that are being made from the Indian corner, you know, so to speak, is to say that uh, countries like individuals, uh, they react to situations in, in ways that benefit them. And they are quite agnostic when it comes uh, to principles or ideologies, particularly in business, particularly in economics. And I would say there are many areas in which India has benefited from a liberal uh, trading system. And there is one particular area in which it is looking to benefit now, like aviation industry, the proliferation of Indian airlines of various types, of some of the highest quality, and they have to be of the highest quality because they are new planes, you know, they're no new aircraft, and, and, and uh, some, uh, they provide competition uh, to, 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 to more well-established airlines such as ours. And they want open skies. Uh, they, they want a fifth freedom. They want sixth freedom. They're looking for seventh freedom. And so you push because you are at an advantageous position. 
Now, there are certain areas in which you feel you're disadvantaged. And then we wave it. And therefore, <laughs> Rosine will reply on that one. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, trying to respond to everything with, with, one, with one sentence replies. First, uh, I feel a bit like Pope. Benedict here, uh, if, if you would excuse the, the inapposite comparison, uh, everybody seemed to focus on just one word of my presentation. <laughs> spoiler. Yes, India has been a spoiler, uh, but there are lots of other spoilers in the WTO too. France is as bad a spoiler as India. Uh, so so you, 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 you're in company. You're, you're, you're not alone in being a spoiler. Second point, uh, I, I, I accept the criticism from Anil and also uh, Mr. Koenig's uh, comments on India's position having improved somewhat uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so. I, 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 I'm aware of the improvements. It's just that sometimes one needs a magnifying glass to see these improvements, and they should really be much faster. Third point. Uh, uh, Kishore Mahbubani's uh, point about uh, China's twin leadership role in geopolitics and in trade. Uh, I, I accept that completely and of course the two are linked and the Americans can be an obstacle in preventing China from exercising more leadership on the economic front. Thankfully we have a US Treasury Secretary who compensates somewhat from the otherwise crass incompetence of the Bush economic team. Uh, that said, I think there's still some room for China to improve uh, its, 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 uh, its leadership role in, in, in the WTO, even in some, some limited though practical ways. Fourth point, um, all the evidence or the weight of evidence shows that developing countries go from poverty to prosperity by liberalizing themselves rather than waiting or making their liberalization contingent on what developed countries do. Uh, that argues for unilateral liberalization, though of course it has to be politically feasible rather than something in an economics textbook. And that I think gives the line to a lot of arguments for India holding back, waiting for what happens in the WTO and elsewhere. Uh, my, my sixth and final point relates to the comments over there from the gentleman from Oxfam. Let me put it this way. Oxfam and other Western NGOs are even bigger spoilers than the government of India or uh, France or uh, well, certainly compared with the government of India. Uh, the, the, the interests of poor people in poor countries is badly served by organizations like yours that come up with cliches and headlines along the, way you, along the lines you just did uh, without backing up their arguments uh, reasonably and, 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 and with evidence. Uh, and it's incumbent on people like me to say that you are wrong and you actually do harm on X, Y, and Z grounds. Um, I Rasim, think that's said enough. That is an appropriately <laughs> provocative way to end, I think. Can we thank